whenever you're ready. We've been recording this whole time. Take it away. I feel nervous already. You've been recording this whole time? <laughs> you sneaky little. Mm. Welcome to the Poet Salon. What? Hold on. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to season two of the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over drinks we prepared especially for them i am luther all about crows hughes i'm gabrielle bates and i'm duji tahat this week we're talking with jericho brown about the south the church and rhymes versus lines y'all our drink for this episode is the busy izzy a highball that's made with sherry bourbon pineapple and lemon juice which <laughs> was designed by the legendary tom bullock the first african-american to publish a bartending manual back in when in 1917 that was a long time ago jericho brown is the recipient of fellowships from the guggenheim foundation the radcliffe institute for advanced study at harvard and the national endowment for the arts and the recipient of a whiting award his first book please won the american book award his second book the new testament won the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. His third collection is The Tradition, which was shortlisted for the National Book Award for Poetry. Brown's poems have appeared in all sorts of amazing places, including the New York Times, the Paris Review, Time Magazine, and several volumes of the best American poetry. He has several, not just one. He is currently an associate professor and the director of the creative writing program at Emory University. But before we jump into that conversation, we just wanted to say thank you for listening to our first season. Thanks. Thank you. And coming back to join us for this second one, which is going to be, frankly, amazing. Amazing. Like, can we just say? It's going to mm, be so like good. I mean, amazing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> mm, mm, so good. Um, in episodes to come, we'll be answering your questions per our usual format. Uh, so please tweet those at us, email us, you know the drill. We thought it would be fun to start off season two by just shouting out some books that made us mad in 2019. So this who one's wants easy. to start? Arya Abers Hard Damage. <laughs> oh, that was one of mine too. <laughs> I know, it's still fucking me up. No, fi- like honestly, how dare she be so smart and so emotionally devastating in her first book. Yeah. I have to rethink my entire manuscript now. <laughs> That's why I'm mad. It's because yeah. it's like literally I'm like, yeah. damn, now I have to redo mine. Yeah. Uh, you're like, or for me, it was more like, well, mine's never going to be this good. Right. So <laughs> guess that's fine. But I'm mad. Also, Diana Coy wins uh, Ghost of. Oh, really fucked yes. me up. The, uh, I th- what would we call this? I Those aren't like fast yeah. like their visual yeah so she poems. has a series of poems concrete uh, poems based maybe? on yeah. photographs that her brother cut himself out of and she writes poems uh, that take up the shape of the picture that was left they're um, concrete poems I yeah think. so there's they're like a big those, absence yeah. in the middle have you heard her read them where she like reads across the yes, gap yes when she read for i think for the verses on the verses okay. podcast ah. yeah Wow. Oh, it's sonically so amazing. Honestly, yeah, I think that series of poems in particular did make me mad because I'm I'm a poet who thinks a lot about like the visual and poetry and I I just know I could not pull that off. It's such a technical feat the way she writes those poems. It seems so simple. 
mm-hmm. and obvious in some ways. It's like, right, like you write a poem to fill that empty space. Yeah, like anyone but could try it, but right. to actually write a good poem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to do it consistently, like so sustained, like, you know, there are like multiple pictures in that book, but it's just like mm. chef's kiss. Yes. Mm. What about you, Lou? Um, first, I, w- I thought of um, Arias by Sharon Olds. Naturally. That one but didn't make me, me mad, uh, though. Me I think because I'm used to her mad. being such a genius. I was mad. I was. <laughs> <laughs> what made you mad about it? I was just like, so now I have to write a book about my mom as well. Like, <laughs> <laughs> is that what we're doing now, Sharon? Like, really? Like, it's just so good. I think, I mean, she's always been known for, like, you know, the stark starkness of her poems. No, um, not and the starkness. Not starkness. How would you describe them? Maybe audacious. I don't think she's audacious. I think she's very frank and frank. very stark. I think frank. frank. I think Frank is right. Maybe. I don't think she's audacious. I think I think Justin Philip Reed is audacious. Hmm. I don't think Sharon Old is audacious. Hmm. Okay. Um, but just the the way she says things and how she says things um that are both beautiful and also like yeah, I guess really frank and like really like mm. knife in my in my gut. Yeah, I um, feel it. Yeah, I feel it. Yeah, I, c- I can feel her poems. That's a big difference mm-hmm. than a lot of other works. Mm-hmm. But this book in particular feels like a, a finality. Like, it feels like a final, um, like, eh, of her work. <laughs> yeah, what made me mad about that book is that it looks like a collected, but it's all new poems. And I'm like, how <laughs> dare you? After such a robust career, after so many books, you're just going to casually drop this book that is so many pages and full of so many good poems. Like you, you'd expect there to be a, so much kind of dead weight in a book that large, but it's just so good. I disagree with all of the books that make y'all mad. Um, honestly, Tainan Bambrick's book made me kind of mad. Mm, yeah. because Vantage, shout out. Um, because it's like I had the experience reading it of like having read an entire really amazing novel, mm. but in like mm. an hour of reading mm-hmm. and I'm just like how how'd she do that and like we're almost exactly the same age but mm-hmm. she's already had like all these wild experiences and written about them in like the most perfect way yeah mad yeah that's a pretty yeah Maddening. that's like a really unique book so yeah. unique. Like because of that yeah you definitely like oh. don't need the narrative but it does read like kind of like a memoir Mm. yeah but you get it you get the narrative more kind of impressionistically like I just had the experience when I finish it that I've read a full novel but reading it doesn't feel like reading a novel right 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 right. yeah it's not as like involved and like yeah yeah Yeah. it's not like super chronological or anything right Exiles of Eden by Ladan oh, that book is amazing. On the low. What? Y'all have been keeping that close oh to the chest because I have not gosh. read that. That's that book is amazing. Neither of you have told me to read oh it, and God. now I'm mad I'm about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that book made me mad. That actually made me mad. Wait, tell me about it because I haven't read it. I mean, I know about it, but I haven't read it. It was, it was so sharp. I just remember, like, it's really intelligent, and um, uh, I think, like, there are a lot of... I've been writing a lot of one stanza poems um, okay. and I think that that book made me want to try like one stanza poems hmm. where I'm just like, there's so much packed into single stanzas. They're like really smart and well-crafted and um, like are kind of making an argument and are making the reader constantly sort of complicit 
and mm. and what's going on. Uh, there's moments in the book where there's actual pictures and photographs that she has taken herself. Um, there's this wonderful poem that's like Winnie the Pooh, like uh, like a Winnie the Pooh illustration, Aww. but it's like but it's blew my mind. Yeah. Um, it was like a it's it's like from a, like the like Christopher Robin. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of sad. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's what she does a lot is like play on this like uh idea of sadness and also yeah she's very very sharp in her language and in her image um and critique and like critique, using those yeah. things to like critique right because there was like a because i think like in the illustration winnie the pooh gets like in some mud right yeah. and it's like winnie the pooh in blackface is sort <gasps> of the illustration sort of the thing, yeah. right oh. um and there isn't like a ton of work like you right like it's not like she needs to explicate that at all <laughs> but it's like oh shit wow is this another first book? This is the second book. The second first book? book is uh, The Kitchen Dweller's Testimony. And uh, people have described her first book as like a Duende book, hmm. um, which I agree with. And so. What does that mean to you? Um, uh, I mean, it's just a book for me that is uh, um, that hits the gut mm-hmm. in a very like simple way. Like it plays on like it plays a lot of like. Well, it's not outside the window now, but plays a lot of like uh, domestic things and the home and external and things like that. But it hits the gut in a way where it's not um, over exaggerated. Um, And the way she talks, her language is very wonderful in the same way. Um, Which might not be Duende, the way I'm describing it, but that's what I think of Duende when I think of uh, that word is Mm. gut. Mm. She's in the gut. Yeah. It definitely does that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another book I was mad at this uh to in twenty nineteen was uh Jake Skeet's debut book. Oh. Um Eyes Battle Dark with a Mouthful of Flowers. Um which is a fucking fantastic title. Um <laughs> just mad at the title. <laughs> honestly, true. And the book cover. And the book cover is like amazing it's a beautiful, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um but the book itself, uh it's so fucking beautiful. Um it's filled with desire and longing and all the good shit that I love to write about. <laughs> um, but the way that uh, Jake Skeets like uh, blends in culture and um, you know, homosexuality and uh, just kind of everydayness of violence, um, something I haven't seen before. And it's all beautiful, so it feels like it shouldn't be beautiful. It's like you're talking about blood and dying, mm-hmm. um, but in this beautiful way where I feel like I'm being tricked huh but it's not like prettying the violence in some sort of way at that all feels. no okay. it's just like he talks mm. about people dying and it's like you know so-and-so died last week and this week i'm drinking beer but it's so beautiful outside that's like the type of shit it's like huh. that's true it is beautiful outside and so-and-so did die last week yeah. and you are just drinking beer like here we are <laughs> i feel like you do that sort of magic in your poems lou yeah, 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 I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not like Jake Skeets. I mean, I love that you owned that. <laughs> not that like Jake Skeets. So mm. I'm Luther Hughes, not Jake Skeets. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel like we could go on and on and on and on and on because 2019 had so many incredible poetry so books many. that made me angry with how good they were. But we should definitely get into this conversation with Jericho Brown, ASAP. Clink, clink. <laughs> Cheers. So we often start um, our interviews asking how you arrived at poetry. How I arrived at poetry? Yeah. As if it's his destination. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, well, I was in a car. No. <laughs> I really was in a car because my mother used to drop us off at the library, me and my sister, um, because she had things she had to do. 
she was an improvisational genius um, and that helped her figure out that uh, not being able to afford childcare wasn't gonna stop her. Um, it was gonna help her in some way. And so she, uh, there was this educational opportunity for her kids um, through the library and she knew, I mean, the wonderful thing about going to the library too, in terms of my mother, she knew we were afraid of her. So she wasn't worried about us like tearing the library up or anything. I don't think you could leave kids in the library anymore. They'd like <laughs> destroy the thing. But we were really scared of our mother, you know, so we were good mm. in the library. And I fell in love with poems uh, because they were short. They made me feel accomplished. I could go one page after another. There wasn't all this damn text on the page. I remember the first time um, I, I finished a book of poetry. I don't remember the book. What I remember is the reaction from my mother. She picked us up from the library, and every day when she would pick us up, she would say, what did you do in the library today? And I said, I read a book, Mommy. Not really thinking about it, but I did feel sort of good about getting to the end of a book. Um, and she said, she made this face that nobody can see because this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she was like... <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Surprised and delighted. Yeah. Trying to like describe and, the face. And then she sang for like the next five minutes in the car. Oh, wow. My baby read a poem. <laughs> I was like, why is my mama singing out of her nose? Like, what is going on? And so, uh, my baby read a book. <laughs> like, what is happening? So, and uh, I wanted that to happen to me a lot, you know? Uh, it was like, oh, my mom's not like hitting me upside my head. Like, the secret. And it's funny because I thought I was cheating. Mm. I realized at that moment, it's so funny. Um, you find out so much about yourself if you just look at your, your childhood closely enough, right? Like, my mom asked me what I was doing, what I did in the library. I told her I read a book. She got excited about it. I was happy about that excitement and almost immediately I began to wonder what I had done wrong, like how I had gotten, had made that happen. Cause certainly I must have made that happen in some sort of um, clandestine. <laughs> like I must've done something yeah. wrong to you make got that away happen, with right? Something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, which is the American condition, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> so I, um, so after I said it, I felt like I was doing something sneaky when I would read books of poetry because because I didn't say it was a book of poetry, I mm. hadn't mentioned that I was only reading one fourth of the page. Right. Do you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I didn't say that it was, you know, a sixty-something page book rather than a two or three hundred page book. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was very conscious of that as a kid. But it also became my goal when I went to the library. I was like, oh, they're shorter. The pages, like the number of pages, are shorter, and the page itself is shorter. So I'm going to read a bunch of books of poetry. And it was a lot of fun for me because I don't know how. And I wish more people had this. I wish more people approached poetry in the same way. But I wasn't under the impression that I needed to know what the hell was happening in the poem. Like I didn't think poems were about that kind of sense making. I thought that the goal was to get through the poem and sort of enjoy it as I go. Um, and I, so I would notice things as I would go. So I became a very, very, I mean, six, seven, eight years old very young reader of contemporary poetry. I mean, I was reading old stuff too. What would happen is the librarians, thank God for the librarians who were God. Yeah. our babysitters, Always. whether they knew it or not, they they were giving me the, the books of poetry by the poets they had heard of. Mm. So I was reading Shakespeare, I was reading Milton, I was reading Dickinson, I was reading Whitman, but I was also reading 
Sylvia Plath, Robert Lowell, Ann Sexton. I was reading Langston Hughes, Phyllis Wheatley. I was reading Rita Dove. You see what I mean? So, I mean, which is really weird because, you know, you really shouldn't be given <laughs> a depressed 10-year-old poems Aww. by Ann Sexton with titles like Wanting to Die. Yeah. But they didn't know that. So it was the best thing that ever happened. They weren't poet. They were librarians, but they weren't poetry readers. They were like, oh, this must be good right. because we've heard of this person. Right. So then they would give them to me, you yeah. know, and they knew I would sit in, sit in one place and read it. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, I think that's how I arrived. And then or other arrivals happened along the way. So they, you know, like in Cattle Parish, where I'm from in Louisiana, um, your junior year, you spend the entire um, year of your English class writing one research paper. Um, and I missed the day that the assignments were handed out. You could pick your subject. When I came back, there was one subject left. And it, I promised to God, I came back to school the next day. Everyone had picked all the subjects. The only subject left was the confessional poets. I still remember oh, the wow. The confessional poets, colon, Plath, Lowell, Sexton. I'll never forget it. So I spent the year reading Plath, Lowell, and Sexton and everyone who had ever written about those poets and their poems. So I was reading Diane Wood Middlebrook when I was 16 years old, and I was reading Helen Vindler, do you see what I mean? So wow. I think my education was sort of, I think, I mean, for what I was doing deep and early, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. So much of what you're saying is resonating with me, particularly the sense that by reading poems and maybe even writing them, you're like getting away with something. There's a little yeah. bit of that like sneaky deliciousness to it, which when I you know, arrived at poetry much later than you did in college, I had a very similar reaction. And I think it was because I enjoyed it so much. Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm getting away with something. Like I'm saying I'm studying this, but really I'm just having a really freaking good time. And <laughs> uh, there was something that felt, yeah, like a little sneaky about that pleasure. Um, but that's not really what I wanted to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about the South and Southernness. Um, people love to hate on the South as mm -hmm. a region. And mm -hmm. there was a time in my life where I really internalized a lot of that mm. and was trying to run from that identity, that region. But like for the last few years, I've been really trying to be more open to that part of my identity and treat it with a little more love. And you're a poet who's really helped me doing that um, because if your poems have this way of like acknowledging the complicated messiness of the beloved which so it's it's coming from a place of love but it's also not uh, ignoring the flaws mm -hmm. and um, yeah, yeah. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your relationship to the south and southernness yeah, I mean, part of what what I try to do, though I'm not sure that I was conscious of the try. Try doesn't seem the exact right word, but maybe maybe it's the word in revision, even if it's not the word in in the drafting of poems. But what seems to happen in this book is that's one of the things that I'm trying to stand more fully in is um, the fact that if I'm a poet, I'm a poet of the Southern tradition, uh, and that means that. Whether they like, whether they're turning over in their graves about it or not, I am a descendant of the agrarians. I am a descendant of the fugitive poets. 
Um, and if that's the case, then I'm a poet of the pastoral, uh, which I've always been, but I think in this book I've been much more conscious uh, over and over again. There are images throughout the book about the end of the natural world. Uh, and I think more than ever in my life while writing about this book, I had my hands in the earth, uh, not more than ever. I should say after a long period of time. I mean, when I was a kid, my mom and dad actually the way my dad provided for us was through cutting yards. I mean, he had a lawn service, so I grew up cleaning flower beds and um, planting things and cleaning gutters on roofs and doing whatever, <laughs> cutting edges. Um, and so and I avoided much of that, and then I was lucky enough to have a yard, and I did that thing that I said I would never do. I became obsessed with my yard in the same way that my parents used to be obsessed with their yard and the way their parents were obsessed with their yard. And I realized more and more how this had been handed down, this, um, this thirst for beauty to drive up to one's home and say, I'm home and it's gorgeous and I'm so happy that it looks this way. Also to meet the expectations of the community that the neighborhood itself mm -hmm. is made better because I'm taking care of my yard. Will you please take care of your yard too? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, that I was suddenly um, having these, what seemed to me very adult feelings about nature and about flowers and about choosing flowers and about and and remembering that I knew how to do these things. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and also understanding that my particular love of certain um, trees had to do with the South. Like um, I'll never forget when I, I did live in San Diego, California for a little while and I got assigned this office. It was the first teaching job I had at the University of San Diego. And outside the office, I felt like, oh, I'm supposed to be here because there was a magnolia tree. Mm. It was literally like the only magnolia tree I saw in San Diego the whole time I was there. Yeah. You know, I was like, why it was is magnolia tree your tree? And yeah. I really thought it was there for me mm. um, to make me feel like it'll be all right, you know, because yeah. I was already missing home. I mean, I left, I left Houston, Texas kicking and screaming, you know. Um, anyway, so I think, I think that has a lot to do with, um, with me standing in that tradition. And I think uh, thinking about sonnets in that way, thinking about um, the Gothic nature, that which is Gothic and that which is queer all at once, um, thinking about um, what, what is the difference between the South and my South. You know, when I was a kid, teachers, teachers really would. Uh, I hope they don't do this anymore. It would be interesting to check and see. Um, but teachers really would say, we lost the war. And, you know, I mean, and I would think, no, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no yeah. way. Like, what we there's are no, we talking yeah, about there's there? there's no way I lost the Civil War. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think um, that's an experience that you have to be from the South to have. And if you're a poet, you're already dealing in a certain kind of negative capability um, and, and problematizing. Um, to live through that, to understand well, what is this body I'm in, if it is of that and yet against it. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Um, and, and if you grow up like that, if you're aware of that, uh, then you also apply that to anything you do in your art, right? That you're, you're, be, you're becoming again self-aware, which poets have to be, you have to be. Um, 
And so it's so it's really wonderful. You know, this is why it's so good to be black. You know, I get to see stuff other folk don't get to see. It's so exciting. Do you know what I mean? I mean, but I, you know, I feel differently from a lot of people, a lot of black people in particular, a lot of uh, very supposedly liberal and progressive people about a lot of things um, that I always have to be honest about. I don't, for instance, believe in tearing down Confederate monuments. I think instead that they should all stay up. I think we should just pl change the plaques um, and that those plaques should say, uh, the truth about these people. They should say traitor. They should say slave owner. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I actually think that's that would be of greater use to us. You don't see anybody going to Auschwitz like, oh, let's tear down this concentration camp. That's crazy. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I find that over and over again, um, racism becomes more and more normalized because the answer to it is to erase it, mm -hmm. right? The answer to it is to outlaw the presence of it. Therefore, it can go underground and work in different ways. Do you understand what I mean? So I'm, I'm not really interested in erasures in, in that way. And I feel like they are indeed erasures. And I, I feel like they don't help white people in any way. You know, they actually, I think they hurt white people and they give black folks less to talk about. Do you follow what I mean? Yeah. You know, really the, the experience of, I mean, the experience, you know this, like the experience of living under Confederate monuments is singular as a black person and, or a white person in the South. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, what am I, how do, I mean, you're immediately asking, you have to immediately ask yourself questions about that, given your citizenship. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Um, and I, I think that for me growing up, that was a huge part of my experience and it helped me figure out who the hell I was and what side I needed to be on and how complicated that side would be. And the fact that that side wouldn't always want me, you know what I'm saying? And if yeah. that's not there, um, I feel like those things are harder, are harder to come through because there's no physical representation of foolishness. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I think, I think it's nice yeah. to have physical representations of mm -hmm. foolishness mm -hmm. and it's better for us to be honest about them um but people don't like to talk about stuff so yeah. i just think it's not i just don't think it's helpful to us to be out here not talking about stuff so. and unfortunately not everyone does that self-interrogation that it should prompt like, yeah as which you is said, why you just change the plaques which is, though yeah right you contextualize you know? it in yeah a different way. i mean the real trouble with the real trouble with white people is is being unaware of whiteness in this country in the 21st century, at least, right? Like that, that there's still this thing going on where it's like, you know, they just, you know, you just need a little nudge and get the little nudge. You're like, oh shit, oh I'm sorry. Are y'all like an NPR? No, no. You can, no I can. say whatever you, you want. I'm sorry. I'll stop talking. They probably no. We up. yeah, we encourage that. Do you understand what I mean? That we encourage because we we like for people to cuss. <laughs> uh, sorry, but you you know what I mean, right? That and those nudges don't happen unless you have to do that interrogation. Everybody doesn't have to do it. Some of us are born in positions where we have to do it, but everybody doesn't have to. And I think we need to put more people in those positions where they have to where they have to do that you know we should ha we should be having more open conversations with white people about how they're talking to their children about race uh, because they're not right so if you ask them how are you talking to your children about race that's the beginning so that they can tell you i'm not do you know what i mean and, yeah. then, they, and then they can wonder well why am i not 
because I got the same Facebook that everybody else got. I got the same news channels that everybody else got, and I see the same stuff going on. So why am I not? Do you understand what I mean? But that's got to start somewhere. And, and it starts with certain kinds of questions, and if we don't have physical representations, we can't ask those questions, I think. But you know, people disagree with me. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think a lot about like the type of uh, sort of answer to racism that is like, but I'm not racist or like I don't see color or whatever. Like having that physical representation as like a thing to look at, right? The thing that is like separate from the interpersonal interaction, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, um, I'm going to use the word tradition probably <laughs> a lot, but like the signifiers that, of a yeah. certain tradition, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, of an inheritance, certainly. Yeah. Um, it is sort of like a structural nudge, right? Like yeah. if you just sort of change the plaque, then like the operating structure, uh, not being from the South, but what I imagine, mm -hmm. instead of sort of like celebrating these monuments, they become a reminder of like the facts. Of what mm -hmm. you did yeah. mm -hmm. and what you could do again. Right. And I mean, if anything, put on the monument that it was erected in 1958. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, be yes. honest yeah. about why it's there. Yes. Even the, like, putting up of it, right? Exactly, exactly. Just, like, the yeah, thing it's, it's not about the Civil War at all. It's about segregation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Like, and so that's, and then if we can be honest about that, then we can be honest about, I think, the South. If we can be honest about the South, we can be more honest about the whole of the United States of America. Mm. I found, I mean, you know, bless his heart. You know, people are so kind to me. I was, um, I was, uh, I gave a reading at UT Austin recently and somebody was walking me around the campus and they were talking about how they had taken down their Confederate monuments and um, yay. They were yay about that. Yeah. And I was yay for them because they felt good about that. But you know, they were like, oh, this used to be here, but see, there's just a pedestal. And this used to be here, but you see, there's just a pedestal. And as we're walking by, by these things, I'm also walking by statues of George Washington. And I'm like, George fucking, wa excuse me, I can't stop cussing today. George fucking Washington, like seriously, George Washington's teeth came from his slaves. Are you, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know what I'm saying? Um, put that on the plaque. Tell, show me where George Washington got his dentures. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. well, there's a move towards, um, like, as if there is some narrative that is uh, absolved of the sin, right? Like, that there is some clean version of yeah. America. Yeah. There's no clean, right. you keep scrubbing, you'll get to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's and, an assumption there. And people need, people think that they need that. And, I mean, we've got a, there are two things I think um, I mean for this book that I'm interested in when I read my poems in this <laughs> book. Um, one of those things is just that, that there's no bottom to the damn scrubbing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like you trying to figure out how to clean America up is not going to go down well because at the root it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And we've got to start being honest about that un unless we want to continue to be that thing that it was from jump, right? And then the second thing has to do with... Um, the ways in which we really believe in this country, maybe throughout the world, but definitely in this country, that um, the important thing is what we have in common. Mm. And we're told this over and over again, and I think it's the worst thing for this dispensation. Like it's the thing that's really hurting us that we feel like, as long as I have something in common with you, I don't have to murder you. You know, when Mike Brown lie in the street dead after that, um, Darren Wilson, when he was giving his testimony and when he was on the, um, when he came on uh, TV, 
he referred to Mike Brown as it. And I realized that was why Mike Brown was dead. Michael Brown is dead because Darren Wilson saw it. And so he could kill him. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what happened to Mike Brown, right? He was not, he was alien. The fact of his human body, the fact of his human beingness, it was alien to Darren Wilson. And we really think that that's okay as long as I can say it, if I can keep myself in a position to say it, right? I mean, we literally have cities where there are, where there is not public transportation. So folk can keep, stay in a situation where they will always be able to say it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because if, if we come in contact with each other, then I might have to deal with you. Yeah. Do you follow what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm much more interested actually in us figuring out what we're going to do if I'm nothing like you. Because I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm a queer black man from Louisiana. Like, I'm nothing like a lot of folk, and I'm cool with that. But does that mean I need to be dead? Mm. Does that mean I need to live without proper housing? Does that mean I need to be hungry? Does that mean I need to be unemployed? Do you follow what I'm saying? But I think that's what people decide, right, uh, in some sort of an unconscious way, right? I have nothing in common with you, and therefore you can go. Um, and somehow if I have something in common with you, then, oh, you're okay. Yeah. Strange. Well, and there's a difference. You're sort of pointing to, to the divide between, like, the narrative we tell ourselves about, like, our commonality and, like, the need for, uh, like, the appeal to our shared humanity mm -hmm. um, and then the, like, structural segregation, right? Exactly. It's like if I appeal to a we but, like, my policy divides us, then, like, mm -hmm. what do I really mean? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, kind of switching gears a little bit and going back to Southerness. When I think of Southerness, all the time I think of um, the Baptist Church mm -hmm. um, and being raised by a Southern mother from New, from New Orleans. I always got that kind of Southern feeling in my face. Um, and then your poems kind of enact kind of a call and response kind of thing mm -hmm. um, that I attend to Southerness and the Baptist Church. I'm really wondering more so about that rhetoric you use in your poems and where that comes from and how you come about doing the call and response in your work. Yeah, I mean, I think it is directly from the church. I was raised um, in a Baptist church um, as a kid, and it was a really important part of our lives. It was very important to our family. I think uh, the thing that uh, many so-called progressive and liberal people in the United States don't understand about the church is that it is its own world within the world. You know, I was raised in a situation where you could, you know, you could be on the... Um, you could be on the church football team, the church baseball team, <laughs> the church debate team. You could learn to sew. You could learn. To, do you know what I mean? Like everything that you can get in the world, you could get Not at church. the church. You know yeah. what I mean? Even sex. So, <laughs> so there was, there was really no. Do you know what I'm saying? No, yeah, like, yeah, for sure. And so it, it creates its sort of own mirror realm inside yeah. the larger realm, um, and and because of that. Um, I was, and because I was a believer in that particular church in, in, and in the ways of that church, much of what I do now in the way I speak and the way that I go about things and the way I read my poems aloud and the way that I'm sort of thinking about how the line will work has to do with that intonation that I heard people have when they would get mm. up in front of, and not just the preacher, but anybody you gave right. a microphone to, anybody who got behind a podium. Um, there's a certain kind of sp plain spokenness that is lifted to dignity. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and so, and that, that speech, I think is something that over and over again, I am recalling and going back to in my poems. Cause it's just a part of who I am and a part of my own, uh, my own vernacular at this point.
Um, but I also think that um, call and response and um, chanting, I like the word chant because, you know, it's the word that's in enchantment. Um, and I think part of what we're doing, y'all know this because y'all are poets, part of what we're doing when we're writing poems is we're casting spells, you know, mm -hmm. we're conjurers. And we, we, part of the reason why we're doing that is because that's how we feel when we have read the poems we love. We're like, this actually doesn't make sense because I'm here crying <laughs> and this is words on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you really magic. think about it, it's amazing, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then when the more you practice that, the more you practice casting spells, the more you learn about how to do that, the more you're like, wait, I am a real live sorcerer. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Or maybe shaman or maybe preacher or mm -hmm. maybe, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so the idea of uh, decreeing or declaring or speaking over um, someone or a situation in order to change its dynamic um, is part of what we learned, what I learned in church and part of what I believe about poetry, right? That in the writing process, and I think this is part of what we learn when we learn craft and what we add to when we bring our own backgrounds to our particular craft what we're learning is how to speak over a thing, mm -hmm. right? To change its dynamic. Part of what we're doing is changing the lens through which we see a thing, right? When you change the lens through which you see the thing, then you understand it differently. Um, and that's what, that's the magic, I think, of poetry. That's what I love about it. One of the things I love about it at least so much, oh my God. So yeah, I think, um, and yeah, I think that's had everything in the world to do with me being able to get my poems done. You know, if you were to catch me writing my poems, um, I'd, I'd probably look like some sort of indigent, insane person. You know, I'm, it's 2.30 in the morning, I'm wandering around my house, chanting to myself in my underwear, and <laughs> coming with something and running back to my computer, <laughs> you know, walking around my house, and looking up at the sky as if it's gonna bring down words, and then running back to my computer. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? And then partially sitting at my computer and looking at my computer like it's crazy, like looking at the screen like, what are you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that actually, I, I would love to film that someday and just hit fast forward. <laughs> Time-lapse documentary yeah, of Jericho really, Brown's exactly. process. Well, everybody, like what do you look like while yeah, you're writing your poem? Yeah. You look like a hot mess. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like I always wonder, Definitely like looking not. back at it, particularly writing this book, because this book um, was overwhelming and it overcame me in ways that I still don't completely understand. Uh, I was like, what? I must have looked a mess. <laughs> Walking around, mumbling to myself, pulling on my yes. lips. <laughs> Hitting the side of my head. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, what? Like, I'm like, like what is that to do? <laughs> anyway. Um, do you attribute the way you read poems, analyze poems, to the way that preachers and pastors analyze the Bible? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and it was really wonderful growing up with that. I really wish people would understand this about the church. Um, it's very real. You know what mm. I mean? Like when a, when a preacher gets up on Sunday, he literally wants to give a sermon on the comma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's an education in English. This is yeah. not yes. something I make up. Yeah, right. close, I'm reading. Up. close reading. Yeah, yeah. deep and, close reading. And yeah. of literal lines that are mm. numbered for you. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So over and over again, you're learning 
Like, oh, people like, you know, preachers love saying stuff like, people like to stop there, but you got to look at this next one. <laughs> and like, oh, I was reading 58, but let me read 59. <laughs> Do you know? Like, I mean, it's literally the lines are numbered. Mm-hmm. They're numbered in what? Shakespeare? Do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? So um, all of that is lifted to, to this um, sort of feeling of, of um, literary realness. Do you follow what I'm saying? And you're, if you're indoctrinated in that, you're sort of ready, I think, and prepared for literature and for poetry in particular. Yeah. Um, can you then now also talk about the duplex form? Um, I think it does a lot of the things we're talking about, the call and response, right? The 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 enchanting. Um, yeah, just talk about that for us. Well, also explain what the duplex form is for yeah. people who don't know and then talk about it and then maybe read one. Yeah, I'll talk about it, but there's an essay um, at the Poetry Foundation blog, Harriet, called Invention, which everyone can find where I probably say things better. And then I talk about it also in a interview in the Bennington Review with Michael Dumanis. Um, it's a form that I invented that is at once a sonnet, a huzzle, and a blues poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the blues poem part is, I think, where that call and response comes in. Um, I'm interested in the blues in particular because uh, unlike the, the pantoum or the, uh, the villanelle, that sec- the, the repetition in the blues is generally made for emphasis rather than for the repurposing of a line. And one of the, um, I guess, goals I had while writing duplexes was figuring out how to make both happen, right? How do I make, and that's where the blues tone and the blues aesthetic comes in for me in the duplex. The second time I have to say a line, how is it that it comes through as emphasis, but also how is it at the same time repurposed so that it introduces what will be the next line? So that's what I was thinking about in that part of the poem. Um, As for the hustle, uh, I'm interested in the way that the hustle is not a poem, uh, um, is not a narrative poem or discursive poem, it's a poem made by way of accumulation and juxtaposition so that each couplet has nothing to do with each other and um, each line in each, in the two lines in each couplet have nothing to do, don't have to have anything to do mm-hmm. with each other other than the fact that you put them together and then suddenly they do have everything to do with each other. Uh, so that's part, of, that's part of what I was interested in in that part. Um, and then the sonnet has to do with the fact that if I have um, 14 rhymed lines of iambic pentameter, then that's duplexes all day long. There's an in rhyme. There, there's. Um, I wanted to marry east to west, so they're nine to eleven syllables, which is a way of a line, which is a way of um, approximating um, iambic pentameter. I mean, part of what I mean at first, the first duplexes actually were <laughs> just straightforward iambic pentameter, obviously with variations. Mm. Um, and then I was like, this is actually too much sonnet, and mm-hmm. so I went toward um, syllabics so that I could pair sonnet back because each of the forms ends up getting paired back obviously in order to make way for the other form right um so they can all live together in a single house (laughs) right the duplex right so that each side of that house is made whole but also is one vessel one house um and you know i to be quite honest i i was thinking about i mean i think i've probably been thinking about 
inventing this form for the last maybe 15 years of my life. Oh, wow. And I was um, working with it in my head. So I was just thinking like, oh, this sounds good. It would be interesting if this happened. I wrote a poem. Uh, there's a poem in this book called um, As a Human Being. And one of the things that happened that sort of led me to realize, oh, I'm going to have to finally deal with this. Toward the end of that poem, I say, um, forsaking all others, no matter how sore the injury, no matter how sore the injury has left you, you sit understanding. And that sort of was like, oh, that's that thing I've been thinking about for the last 15 years. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I saw that happen in that moment. And it was a trigger for me to like chase it in a different way. So I finally got to it yeah. yeah i was also really sick and um when i got well i was like i need to work on this thing i said i was gonna do mm -hmm. so i don't die first <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. um and I, i'm mostly writing this book i just felt like i was gonna die um quite seriously uh but also in a very exhilarated way because i had so many poems at once that it felt really crazy like i'm a slow writer i don't have any feeling about that like I'm not I'm not out here trying to have a book a year so I don't really <laughs> I don't see what that I mean for me that doesn't do anything I don't mind people having a book a year I don't care if anybody else does but I, it's never been like a goal of mine you know so I just kind of like chill mm -hmm. I have my poems I'm working every day mm -hmm. failing working every day <laughs> failing mm -hmm. you know and then suddenly maybe I have you know, the pages I need for a book. But in this particular case, I was writing three poems a day um, between Thanksgiving of 2017 and Martin Luther King Day of 2018. I was writing, I was pulling over on the side of the road writing. I was leaving out of movies, going to the restroom, trying to type stuff in my iPhone. Like, And I really thought I was going to die, not because, I mean, I didn't get sick until the end of um, December. And part of that had to do with the fact that I was really running myself down. But part of the reason why I thought I was going to die is because I had never written that much that quickly. And, you know, you know, the, the thing that runs alongside growing up religious is growing up superstitious. Mm -hmm. Right. So I was like, well, I know I'm supposed to be a poet. This is something I know. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I actually don't know anything else. <laughs> yeah. Do you follow yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So I know I'm supposed to be a poet. I know that's my identity. I know that's who I am. And I know when I'm doing that, I'm doing the right thing. So why is this suddenly happening to me? all at once and the only answer that seemed to make sense at that time was that God was getting ready to take me out of here mm. do you know do you know what I mean like I was like it's I over. so understand you know that, what I mean that sort of thinking so yes. I was like texting my friends and I was calling them in the middle of the night because I was like mm, this ain't right because they were all excited you know my friends would be excited to have a poem um, my friend the fiction writer Ayanna Math Mathis I would text her and I'd be like I'm texting you because when I die I need people to see that I told you <laughs> she was she was like, child, you ain't gonna die. You need to go your ass to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but I was, you know, it was a happy time because I was getting all that writing done, but also a yeah. scary time. Yeah. Um, a scary time for me. And so the duplexes came because more than ever, I was interested, given how scary that time was, I was interested in creating a form that would really represent how I felt in the world. Like, I feel like I'm a person... Um, who carries several identities, several subjectivities in a single body, you know? And I think um, we really haven't figured out how to deal with that in our society just yet. We haven't figured out how to deal with that in one another just yet. Um, I think even I make the mistake of dealing with that in wrong ways when I meet people 
who have several identities in a single body, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it's one of the things um, that I was trying to do with the duplex. How do I have all of these things whole? Because, you know, I don't feel like I'm 27% queer and 52% black and 12% mm-hmm. Southern and, mm-hmm. you, like, I don't, yeah. you, or, you know, 2% poet. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I am everything I am 100%. Yeah. 100% yeah. Duplex, I begin with love, hoping to end there. I don't want to leave a messy corpse. I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. Those who need most need hell to be good. What are the symptoms of your sickness? Here is one symptom of my sickness. Men who love me are men who miss me. Men who leave me are men who miss me in the dream where I am an island. In the dream where I am an island, I grow green with hope. I'd like to end there. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, you've changed your hair. Oh, I just let it down. I just look at oh, it. The hair's nice? coming down. Um, oh. Oh, uh, so oh. I'm, <laughs> you're gonna make me blush. Uh, so I've heard in interviews talk about um, your devotion to like the carefully wrought line, mm-hmm. um, and I think you know that's a thing that many poets talk about, like the weight of the line. I'm really curious about like your uh, consideration of the weight of the rhyme. Um, I think of like. I think there's a maybe an element of surprise. Like I'd love to hear you talk about like how surprise also like maybe plays a role in like crafting the way or or informing the way you employ rhyme in your poem. Wait, ask the second part again. How how surprise may inform the way you employ rhyme or Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the one of the reasons that I got particularly interested in rhyme in this book is I was I had actually avoided, in my first book, I had really avoided rhyme. And um, looking back at it now, it seems almost too obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fighting not to write sonnets in that book because uh, I had been trained really hard in how to write them. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that Why? the rebellious thing to do was to write 13. I mean, throughout that book, there are all these 13 and 15 line poems. <laughs> And the reason why they're, th- I mean, there are all these like. Because you're just refusing I mean, to let it be. The first poem in the book is a, is a, um, a rhyming quatrain. And then, um, and I very distinctly remember that the next quatrain was rhyming. And I, I fucked it up because I was like, I cannot deal with the <laughs> fact that I'm rhyming. Like I could not deal. I added a line. There's a line. I mean, I probably shouldn't even say this, but there's a line <laughs> that I just literally added because I was like, you will not be 14 lines. <laughs> That's what I you love won't that rebelliousness. Yeah. That's well, what you what, what, what were you fighting against? Like, why didn't you want it to be 14 lines? I mean, it, I think I was fighting against the same thing I'm fighting against the tradition. With, with all of these poems that are sonnets. I mean, you know, this book has so many sonnets in it. It's embarrassing. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, what are you doing, girl? Get it together. <laughs> you think you're Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, so, you know, I think 
I've taken that on in a different way. I wasn't really thinking about it as directly in my second book, probably because I had other projects in mind. Like I was trying to figure out in my second book how to write a longer line, how to be discursive, like a, how to end a poem without sounding like you're ending a speech, Jericho. Do you know what I mean? And in my first book, I was um, very willfully trying to create the sublime moment without formal without those, like, how do I subvert form toward the sub sublime, you know? And in the, excuse me, and in this book, I probably turned more directly to rhyme because I needed to find a new way to surprise myself into what I was saying. The wonderful thing, and I try to tell my students this all, my students have all this fear about rhyme, which is fascinating to me because, you know, this is one of the things that first attracted me to poems, that they rhymed, and, uh, you know, they helped me remember them, right? Um, so one of the um, one of the things that I'm interested in is that when you have to find a rhyme and that becomes more important than what you have to say and you have to trust your subconscious given the rhymes you find, then you're in a position where you're surprising yourself because you're saying things you did not expect to say, right? You don't want to rhyme. Um, tear with fear because that already happens in every R&B song ever written right <laughs> so when you do you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. so when you rhyme tear with matador then suddenly you're in a new place a new land and you have to bring to fore everything there is that you know about matadors do you understand what I mean well and it goes to the thing you were saying about the duplex where like just now they're next to each other and whereas maybe they mm -hmm. would have previously not had anything to do with each other now that they're there they have everything to do with each exactly. other exactly exactly so I think um for me, that's what that's what I'm interested in as it relates to rhyme. I have a different set of questions to ask myself when I finish a first draft because now things have led in directions I didn't expect them to, to go in. I mean, when I finish um, what I call pre-writing, I mean, what I'm interested in doing as a writer is creating a mess of text, and sometimes that mess of text includes rhymes. And then once I have that mess of text, I can... I can say to it, who is your speaker, as opposed to mm. me coming to the page, the blank page, uh, and saying, oh, this is a poem about blank, right? This, I'm gonna write a poem about the first time I went to school, the first time I made love, the first time I, you know, and mm. I, I don't really write my poems like that. You know, I write my poems by way of sound first, and then through sound, I'm trying to figure out sense. But I don't start with sense, because if I were to do that, then I would, I would be starting with intention. I would be starting with an idea that I know what the truth is, but the whole purpose of me being a poet is that I'm finding the truth out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I really love the idea of asking the poem who the speaker is, or like the draft of the poem as like a primary way of making order. I think, I feel like that's a thing that I take for granted, like who the I is in the poem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's so easy to, assume and like not even question like to not even actually just like evaluate like in a draft uh, in the revision process so it's really interesting mm -hmm. that you approach it that way so then does the surprise of the rhyme happen often in the like drafting of it or do you sometimes use it in revision um i think i will push toward rhyme now if i see that rhyming is happening because i'm aware of what the forms are yeah um and if I see myself repeating certain lines, then I put, then I know, you know, right now I'm actually working on a villanelle. It's hilarious. Um, but I only, the only reason I'm working on a villanelle is because I saw myself repeating two different lines mm. when I was making the mess of text. Mm. And so that's the hint to me mm. that I'm moving toward villanelle. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I just sort of take cues given what I know about poetry. 
uh, that's how I think about form and that's how I think about rhyme. Uh, sometimes the rhyme, another thing that's happening, I think, in this book, in the tradition, is that I had read, um, I think just before, I would say, well, it must have been, mm, it was the summer of 2017, I read all of Gwendolyn Brooks again, and I had all these, like, Gwendolyn Brooks trap books that you have to, like, steal from people <laughs> to get, you know, and, um, you know, I just like the fact that she'll, like, she will go off into a series of very simple rhymes which like tear every, it like tear, every time she does it, it tears everything up. Or she'll have a sonnet that is definitely a sonnet by way of rhyme, but not by way of meter. So that like, you know, in the couplet, the last line, in the last two lines of the poem, the couplet, um, the, the last line will be like two syllables and mm -hmm. the line before will be 22 syllables. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? But they'll rhyme. Yeah, 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 yeah. but they'll both, but they'll both have the same ear rhyme. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I was sort of interested in seeing what she was doing with that and and and, pro and probably being influenced by that often um, in my writing of the poems. And, and also going toward, the other thing that I was doing in this book is going toward what I would definitely tell my students not to do, um, which has become a huge, um, which has been a huge engine for me as of late in terms of writing poems. You know, as soon as I tell my students that they can't do something, <laughs> in a poem, then it becomes... Then you run into it. I go try to figure it out, and I feel like I'm figuring it out for me and for them, because mm -hmm. um, I'll say to them, you can't, and almost as soon as I say it, I'll say, well, I don't want to tell you, you can't. Anything is possible, but you might not want to try. <laughs> yeah. But then I'm like, I feel sort of responsible to see, well, I wonder if you can. Wait, so what was the rule that you felt like you were breaking for this book? Well, a bunch of, you know, people don't like a bunch of simple rhymes. I mean, we're sort of told not to do that in poetry. Um, but I find that if the words are complex, right, um, you know, rhyming certain words that you don't expect, it doesn't matter how simple they are as long as they're unexpected. Mm -hmm. Do you understand yeah. what I mean? So I, I found that that was useful to me. Um, so, so things like that, also things about sentimentality and sentimental lines, um, you know, I'm glad I'm a poet and not a football player or a basketball player, uh, because I don't have to worry about, you know, retiring at 34. And so I have a long time and I know I just need to keep everything in that, um, there are lines that I have that I don't imagine ever working, but I hold on to them anyway, because in context they might work. Or if I put them next to another line that I don't have yet, because I haven't had the experience that will lead to the line. If I can put them next to that other line, they'll work. Sometimes that takes 10 years. Sometimes that takes 15 years. I mean, many of these poems have lines in them that were written as far back as 2004. You know, and I remember the year because I, I had a computer stolen. Oh. So I always tell people, that's that computer. That's where my Nobel is. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like I, um, you know, I begin with love hoping to end there is really not going to work well in a workshop. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? But then if you, if you follow it with, I don't want to leave a messy corpse, then suddenly that changes the tone of that line where it might work okay in the workshop or just in your poem, which is much yeah. more important than the workshop. Or, you know, I managed in this book to say, um, I remember crying when I wrote it. I was so excited and so happy and so sad and all the feelings you feel when you write. Mm. I remember writing 
um, or coming to a place where I could use a line. And I sort of remembered, I didn't have to go look it up or anything, but um, the line, I love my mother. Yeah. Like, who thinks they're going to get to? You never think you're going to get to use Yeah, that. you're never going to get to say I love. I mean, it's true, though. Who thinks they're going to get to say that in a poem? And I felt that that was in that moment when I, before, when I got to the point where I could say it and I knew what was going to come right after it and it was going to be sort of boxing in between these two things and belong, mm. I felt completely accomplished. Mm. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? And some people feel accomplished because they've managed to write, you know, the big complex epic poem, but there also is an, an accomplishment in being able to say the plain spoken thing or mm. the supposedly sentimental thing. And so those were the kinds of, there were risks of formal concern, but mm. there were also risk of, um, I guess what we would call content concern as it relates to that which is supposedly sentimental, so. Steak. I am a they in most of America. Someone feels lost in the forest of we, so he can't imagine a single tree. He can't bear it, a cross, a crucifixion, such a Christian. All that wood headed his way in the fact of a man or a woman who might as well be a secret, so serious his need to see inside, to cut down, to tell. How old will I get to be in a nation that believes we can grow out of a grave, can reach, climb high as the first state bank, take a bullet, break through concrete, the sidewalk, the street someone crosses when he sees wilderness where he wanted his city, his cross tie, his telephone pole, timber, timbre. It's an awful sound, and people pay to hear it. Mm. People say bad things about me, though they don't know my name. I have a name, a stake. I settle, dig, die, go underground, tunnel the ocean floor, root, shoot up like a thought someone planted. Someone planted an idea of me. A lie, a lawn jockey, the myth of a wooded hamlet in America, a thicket, hell, a patch of sunlit grass where any one of us bursts into one someone as whole as we. Hmm. I'm so fascinated by how you use the we throughout this whole book, um, but I think especially following this poem, just in thinking about speaking as a collective mm -hmm. and for and as different groupings of people. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on that word, on um, the word we. I know lots of poets have feelings about it and like ethical thoughts about it and political thoughts about it. And so whatever direction you might want to take that, I'd just love to hear you mm -hmm. unpack. Yeah, well... You know, when you're writing, you're thinking about, um, if you're thinking about anything, you're thinking about the most uh, emotional, powerful, um, how will I say this actually? Um, how do I get at an emotion in the most powerful way? And I find that the word we, because it's loaded with a lot of that trouble that you speak of, um, has sort of an, uh, it has an automatic uh, feeling attached to it. Um, and as soon as people hear it, they really do want to know whether or not you're talking about them when you say we. Um, 
And so I was sort of interested in doing that over and over again because I find that when people say we, I don't always feel that way. And sometimes I do feel that way. And then I'm sort of surprised by who's saying it. Like, oh, like, why are you saying we? I didn't, yeah. think, I didn't think you were my we, but maybe you are because <laughs> you said this thing. And now I'm asking myself, are, <laughs> are you? Are are you okay, actually? Because you weren't yesterday. Um, So (laughs) those kinds of things are are interesting to me, and I'm interested in uh, the complexity of a community or of a people um, and how, um, for some people, when I say a people, they don't want to include everybody, (laughs) you know, who might be a part of that people. It's like everybody who is my people except these six folk do you know do you know what i mean so uh so that's part of why that's part of why the we i think is happening um another example of it i think happens in the poem after avr young where i say um you know sometimes you is we you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. which would suggest that sometimes you is not Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes you is not we so um yeah i'm just sort of going back Mm -hmm. and forth yeah, and your poem. And using it yeah. where it works. And also um, trusting intuition where it does and does not work, you know. Um. Yeah, I was thinking about your poem, Riddle, too. Mm-hmm. Seems very much interested in that and the ending where it's, wait, wait, what are we? What, what on earth are we? What? Mm-hmm. And leaving the audience with that question and the question within the use of the word we, because I, I think of those as maybe two ways that you're immediately getting the audience engaged. You can ask them a question mm-hmm. um, or you can, yeah, imply something that they're orig- that they're immediately going to want to wonder if that's yeah. true or not. Yeah. I mean, the attraction, I think, to writing, a, for me, writing Riddle is just that um, you sort of know that you've done what you're supposed to do as a poet to get it right, and yet you don't you don't know what's going to happen to the reader when they encounter it. You know, there are some poems where it's sort of, you can sort of figure, you can imagine what might happen to the reader when they encounter it. But it's sort of um, weird and odd, I think, to write a poem like Riddle because you're like, I don't know what people are going to do with that or who they're going to think the we is or how they're going to read that title, right? Like, does that mean this is this has to be other than me because it says riddle at the top or when I see re- we does it do you understand but I I like knowing that all of those things are are possibilities I remember after um, Citizen came out and one of the complaints that many of the black men on Facebook had was that they felt like uh Claudia Rankin was talking to white people and I was like yeah, oh yeah you don't want to talk that. to them like <laughs> what'll happen if you talk to white people do you <laughs> it's like like Negro you go to work all the time talking to white people every day <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So I was just, um, many of the poems in the book were sort of uh, taking that on, I think. Like, what, like, am I not supposed to talk to white people? And, you know, I think in large part I thought I wasn't, right? Like, many of my poems uh, from my first two books, I really think I was much more directly speaking if I was thinking of an audience at all, which maybe I'm not, but if I was, maybe they were all black folk and, you know, everybody else was welcome to come watch us talk. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, And in this book, I was like, what will happen if I Mm -hmm. say some things much more directly about whiteness and much more directly to white folks? So I'm curious, like, I think over many times over the course of our conversation, we've talked about sort of like troubling 
whether it's the we or sort of like the multiple identities housed in the I or even I think in our like or the sonnet the sonnet or monuments right mm-hmm. I, I'm curious like in your interrogation in your um sort of asking of us to trouble it and maybe it's even in that last question what right like do you think on the other side of that interrogation is like a clean answer or are we supposed to just sort of like sit in the riddle or is like the interrogation the work mm. you know I'm a literalist because I'm a poet right <laughs> so I think somebody's I think somebody's never heard of Mother Whaley mm. so that's what I think I mean, you know what I mean? Any way you look at it, that's part of the riddle. Somebody's never heard of Mother Whaley. Mm. I mean, you know, and then like y'all, you know, people can run around here and pretend that whaling is, you know, um, what's that word? um, Relative? Yeah. (laughs) But whaling ain't relative. Mm. A whale is a whale. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, It is a response to a certain kind of a treatment. Or a certain kind of an experience, you know? Mm. So I'm, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Some of us ain't heard that. Yeah. Some of us are like, what is a mother whaling? Mm. Yeah. So. Mm, um, a lot of your poems in this tradition and also in other books too, um, blur the line between desire, violence, and consent. Um, and in this these poems in this book, the speaker is often as violent as their abusers and attackers. And so I'm wondering, um, in thinking about poems like Night Shift and um, poems like Of My Fury, like how does violence, your thoughts on violence, t- tend to blur the line between um, violence and desire? Like, Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked me about this, Luther. People don't ask me about this either. There are all these things like going on in this book. So I've talked about this book a lot, and y'all are the first people that mm-hmm. are like, Oh, but, uh, girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the best review we've ever gotten. (laughs) Young lady. Um, there is this. Um, so I guess I have to talk about this, which, uh, you know, every time I do have to talk about it, I ain't ready. Mm -hmm. So I'm, um, I'm trying to figure out the ways. I mean, I, I think in this book, I am trying to figure out the ways in which I have indeed been violent um, and not knowing that and how much of that had to do, how much of my not knowing that had to do with violences that were enacted upon me. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm so thankful for from your generation in particular is um, language that I did not have when I was your age. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know terms like sexual coercion, for instance. I didn't know terms like um, microaggression. And now that I have those terms, things that uh, felt crazy to me make a lot more sense. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. um, language changes your ability to deal with the word and you know, with the world, and you know, um, you know uh, better that you've been taken advantage of because you can name it. Do you follow what I'm saying? Um, so me understanding that about myself and learning that over time um, is something that I've, uh, that I've been dealing with in many ways in all three books. Um, you know, things are hinted at in the first and the second book, but I had to be much more, because this is a more direct book, in all of its poems, I had to be more direct about it 
um, about that, about those occurrences in my, in my own life in these poems, um, which wasn't so easy for me. Um, I gave a reading before the book came out, which was really just the poems that have to do with sexual violence. And um, it was the hardest reading I ever gave in my whole life. So, I, I mean, I think those things are happening because that's the conversation I would like for people and men in particular to begin to have um, because there's, there's no, I mean, there's really no way to have conversations about consent with folk considering their sexual past. Do you know what I mean? Like you can sort of think about like having conversations about consent with 10 year olds, but it's hard to have conversations about consent with 30 year olds who didn't already had sex with 37 people. Do you follow what I mean? Um, And, and it's particularly hard when even, um, when even women and other queer folks are divided about these things. Do you, do you follow what I mean? And, you know, I didn't know there were the divisions that there, that there are. I sort of found this out at a conference where it was like, this woman who was on faculty at this workshop was like, this is ridiculous. This whole consent thing is ridiculous. And I was like, oh girl, is it ridiculous? Oh my God, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I started singing soprano. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And when you're confronted yeah. with that, huh. you realize like, oh, that's really where we are, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm inside magic. Like I'm at a poetry mm-hmm. writing conference mm-hmm. and even there, Mm, not everyone agrees. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, um, so for me, uh, I have to, if I feel, I have this feeling that if I can get at those things on the page, which becomes a public space, whether or not I'm aware of it while I'm writing the poem, then it becomes a part of, um, that whole conversation, right? That these are the things you're capable of. The thing that, um, breaks my I didn't watch it I'm not going to because I just I, I can't watch anything anymore I'm too emotional a person as y'all probably can tell like every time I talk I'm like 17 seconds from crying um, and I was not this way <laughs> but like the last few years of my life I'm just like oh how old are you <laughs> <laughs> weeping what time you get out of work <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying like everything is something to cry about um but I um I heard um, my friend Francine, the poet Francine J. Harris, yes. um, was watching the um, the Michael the documentaries about uh, Michael Jackson's victims, and she would um, she would call me to report on them because she was like, "You ain't gonna watch it, yeah. are you?" And I was like, "You know, I can't watch it." And uh, she was like, "You know, one of those boys didn't realize that Michael Jackson." had molested him until he had children. And what happened is he, he was one day playing with his kids and he looked at them. Um, I have a poem that's sort of in a way about this that came out since the book came out. It's called, um, who knows, it's called Fairgrounds. Um, and it's in, it's in Out Magazine. But he looked and I, because when she told me this, I had to get off the phone with her and like mm-hmm. freak out because this is the experience of my life. You know, like if you see children and you realize what they are, it, you become suddenly aware, like, wait. You could see yourself as that. Wait, like, that's yeah. what I was, that's what I looked like. That's yeah. how tall I was. That's how big yeah. I was. Mm-hmm. That's what I sounded like. That's where I had a hard time communicating. That's when this thing happened to me. And that motherfucker <laughs> was 44 fucking years old. So he knew that I looked like that. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? When you're a kid, you don't you don't know what you look like. True. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't know. And furthermore, you're looking to adults to tell you what's right and wrong. Exactly. Exactly. So um, that particular that feeling is what I'm after. I'm after getting at what I think is a kind of indoctrination into rape culture and um, for me to better understand the ways in which I'm indoctrinated and question that as I move throughout the world every day. And um, I guess I, you know, it's hard talking about what I want other folks to do though, but I imagine that if I keep doing that and if I keep doing it publicly, maybe somebody else is doing it too. Mm -hmm. But I can't go that far because, you know, it's not a good idea to think about that right. when you're a poet. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you can't quantify what you do, you know. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Like you yeah. can't, you're not a firefighter, so you're not gonna be able to say how many lives you saved today. Yep. You know, so it's not a good idea for you to imagine saving anybody's life but your own. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. if you, because you don't have any, if you out here looking for some quantifiable, like, oh, these people don't rape nobody no more, then you're not gonna get that. Yeah. You're just not. Do, do you follow what I mean? And so if, and you know, if you're not gonna get that, you still need a reason to go write again the next yeah. day. So and that's so that's that be, must yeah. not be why we're writers. Yeah, right. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? We have to so be honest this, about the power poems have. Yeah, exactly. Well, the thing the is, this is the thing. I do believe poems have that power, right? I do believe that poems, on an individual basis, end rape, racism, and all other kinds of evils. I really do. In individual people, I really do believe that. But I don't think I ever get any evidence of that. You can't measure that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? True. Yeah. And whether or not I got evidence of it, I would still have to write my poems. So that must not be why I write. I think the same thing about, um, you know, recognition, commendation, awards, and prizes. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if I don't get a review in the New York Times or if I don't win a Pulitzer Prize, I guess that's it. No. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. write my poems. Uh -huh. I mean, if you win all the awards... You still gonna write your poems. You still gotta deal with the fact that like your poems are boo if they boo. You know what I mean? You still gonna <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you still gotta open your computer and look at this blank ass screen and be like, well, let me put something on here. <laughs> do you follow what I'm saying? You don't want all the awards. What you gonna do now? Do you follow what I mean? You still gotta write, you still gotta write. You gotta keep at it. Yeah. And even if you win no award, you gonna stop writing? So it's not about that. Yeah, if so, that. then why are you right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not about that. And it, so it can't be about something that must mean that what I do isn't about anything outside of me, which I think is really hard to say and understand when you are a black queer writer because there's so much expectation as it relates to representation. Mm -hmm. And there's so much you've needed as it relates to representation. I mean, there's no way that you read poets like um, Gwendolyn Brooks and and Amiri Baraka and uh, Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni and Lucille Clifton and, do you know what I mean? Like you don't really read those poets thinking that they don't somehow represent or stand for you or some aspect of you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you don't love SX Hemphill. Like SX Hemphill is loved, beloved, generation after generation of people who never knew him, love him in a way because they believe he represents mm -hmm. them. Do you know what I mean? Um, but if my poems are gonna be any good, I can't think about that. So that, I mean, that's, I think, hugely paradoxical and weird.
Night shift. When I am touched, brushed, and measured, I think of myself as a painting. The artist works no matter the lack of sleep. I am made beautiful. I never eat. I once bothered with a man who called me snack, midnight snack to be exact. I'd oblige because he hurt me with a violence I mistook for desire. I'd get left hanging in one room of his dim house while he swept or folded laundry. When you've been worked on for so long, you never know, you're done. Paint dries, midnight is many colors. Black and blue are only two. The man who tinted me best kept me looking a little like a chore. How do you say prepared in French? How do you draw a man on the night shift? Security at the Museum for the Blind. He eats to stay awake. He's so full, he never has to eat again. And the moon goes. Thank you to Jericho for hanging out, uh, for sharing our affinity for desire, doubling, and daffodils, uh, and for getting me back into burpees, at least just for like a hot minute. Hot. Very hot. Um, thank you to the Flavor Blue for our awesome theme music. Uh, I know you forgot for a minute, but Betty and Spaghetti still slap. Oh my God. Listen all the way through to the end. Always. Uh, thank you to Poke. Um, raw fish with sauce. What could be better than that? Thank you to you for listening. Uh, and for sticking out. You probably have listened to the whole first season. If you haven't, go back and listen to it. Um, it's so great. Thank you for continuing to listen to us. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to rate us five stars. Five. Hit us with all five of them. Write a sweet little review. Tell us how much you love our voices and how smart and cute we are. And uh, it helps other people looking for poetry podcasts find us. And that part is pretty dope. Uh, and in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod. Send us your questions, uh, your desires, your compliments. Again, just tell us that we're cute. That's really all I want. <laughs> we're, tell Digi he's cute, okay? I desperately need it. <laughs> <laughs> Our email is thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. We'll be in your ears soon. Chi bang bang, while the world is falling, we can maintain full din origami, making crane cranes. Got a thousand wishes on my brain, brain. I put salt in the water when I'm cooking up the pasta. Trying to keep me quiet, but you know it's gonna cost ya. Cause I cook them proper, redder than a lobster. Go make bait, but my mama was a monster. This gonna show you these hands Gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and the I just don't understand why y'all have to sit here Snorting cocaine though <laughs> <laughs> I come over here to do a podcast And y'all got all this powder on the table oh Y'all keep snorting God. between questions Jericho and didn't nobody offer me none, and I'm glad because I don't. <laughs>
I'm living a new life. I'm not doing that mess no more. <laughs> I'm clean and sober. <laughs>